Very good to be here. Glad I have the privilege of bringing a portion of God's Word for your consideration this morning. I hope that the things we consider will be of benefit to you. I appreciate Paul's prayer on my behalf. This morning I want to talk about the joy of salvation. In the 51st Psalm, verse 12, David said this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. David had gotten to a point in his life where he was struggling with things, and uh, some of it definitely was from his own doing. And he knew that he had been at a, at a better place in his life, in his relationship with God. And he knew that the joy that he had once felt in his life had diminished. And he was asking God, please help me to feel that joy of my salvation again. There's ups and downs in every, every person's life. That's the way the world works. What I want to talk about this morning is the joy, the comfort, and the warmth that we receive from God in our salvation. I want to start this off by an illustration for myself of things, you know, just physical things on this earth that brings me, you know, just joy and brings me that sense of like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And it has to do with the seasons. Um, I love this time of year. I love coming out of the dead of winter and coming into mid-spring, coming into summertime and where things generally would kind of start greening up. And just whenever I, I'm in this time of the year, and maybe opposite for you, but for me in this time of the year, when I'm coming through this season of the year, it's just, it's like that light at the end of the tunnel. And of course, this has a little bit to do with my profession as well, um, trying to keep a whole bunch of people kind of on the same page as where I'm at, just trying to do my job. Um, it's just, just the, just the, again, the light at the end of the tunnel, just, um, just the joy that brings of coming into this, to this time of the year. And what I want to do in this lesson this morning is I want to take and just use this, this type of an idea, and that's going to be the focus, is how in our salvation, how God gives this same thing to us on a, obviously on a much, much grander scale in the spiritual things and the things that he offers to us. But that's going to be the main purpose of my lesson is to talk about the things in salvation that we have that gives us true hope. In Luke chapter 15, <clears throat> Jesus here is preaching to some scribes and Pharisees and they were mad at Jesus because he was going and talking to sinners, and he was like trying to actually help sinners to, to be saved. And they were angry at him, and so he gave them three different stories here. He talks about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the prodigal son. Now I want to go through these real quick. So in all of these examples, there was something lost, it was found, and there was joy. So the first one, this shepherd loses a sheep. He goes, he leaves 90, 99 of them, he goes and he finds the one that got lost. And in verse 6 of Luke 15, it says, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. So Jesus said this, this man who goes and finds his sheep and brings it back and, and, and finds that which was lost, he said there is joy in heaven and there's joy over this one that was saved. The next illustration, the next parable he gives there is the, the parable of the lost coin. This woman had 10 coins, it said, and she lost one single coin. And it says that she basically frantically went through her house cleaning, sweeping, trying to find that one coin. 
We've all been there, maybe not with the coin, maybe with the ring or something like that. You lost that, and it's just kind of the panic sets, and it's like, okay, I don't remember where I left that, and we've got to find that. It's exactly what she did. She knew she lost it, and she swept, and when she found it, in verse 9, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And again here, my, my purpose is showing this is in that which was lost being found, there was joy in that. And it says specifically here, there was joy in the presence of the angels, but that's not the only place that joy was, was at. Whenever a person repents, when a person is saved, there's rejoicing in, with the angels, but, but God is also rejoicing. He is happy. He's joyful when you choose to serve him. There's joy with the person who decides to be saved who goes through those steps, there's joy there. There's joy in a lot of places. Then there's the third uh, story that Jesus gives in relation to this, and that's the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son, as we know it mainly. Um, Sometimes it's referred to as the parable of the older son, which really is probably the the main thing because the older son was representative of of those uh, scribes and Pharisees he was talking to. But there's a lot of things going in that parable, but whenever the son comes back home, who had gone into this far country and wasted his inheritance. And he comes back to his father's house, and the father says this, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be married. In the verse right before this, in relation to him, them being happy, the father said, Go kill the fatted calf. Apparently there was a calf that was just getting fat. They were just like getting a calf ready for some occasion, for some joyous occasion, this was a perfect time to do that. So he calls to have the fatted calf to be, to be killed so that they can have something to eat and so that they can be happy over that which was lost being saved. In Luke chapter 2, here the angel speaking to the shepherds about Jesus coming into the world. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the angel's telling these shepherds, don't don't be scared. Don't be scared about what's going on here, even though um, you would naturally be scared about this angel speaking to you. You would be trembling over that. But what he's saying is the joy that you're going to experience in what's happening right now is going to completely overshadow the fear that you may feel in what's happening right now. The joy of Jesus coming into the earth overshadows everything. He says that in Jesus coming and in him coming, saving his people, being the Lamb of God, that there would be joy brought to all people. The main purpose of my lesson this morning is I want to think about some reasons of why we have joy in salvation. Of course, there's going to be some supporting points, though, and the first thing I want to do is I want to talk about how do we get salvation first before we can have this joy. The joy of, of salvation that David speaks about and that I'm talking about this morning is not a generic type of joy. This is a joy that we have that comes specifically from knowing God and from obeying the commandments that are laid out for us. I think a lot of people live with this mindset in the world today. They, they may say or they may think something like this. I believe that there's a God. I I agree um, that there's a God. But what I'm going to do is basically I'm going to try to live a good life. And I know I do bad stuff, but I'm basically going to try to live a good life. And whenever 
whenever, you know, this life is over and I go stand before God, whoever he is, he'll know I tried to do good and everything's going to be okay. And I hate to break this news to people who feel like that. It's not going to work like that. I promise you. And I can promise that because that's what the Bible says. It will not work like that. It can't be this general idea, I believe in God. That's not how you get salvation. You have to have specific knowledge of who God is. So in salvation, the first thing you need to know is you need to know that you need God. And not just that you need God after you die and you go to judgment. You need him now. You need him right now. And that's the good thing about what I said a second ago that that won't work. If you're hearing my voice right now, you have the opportunity to get to God. Like, right now, you can get to him. In Acts chapter 17, here Paul, the apostle, was in Athens, in Greece. And he was in this place where was the center of, of human, humanism, human logic, all of those types of things. And Paul was here, and it says as he was walking around the city of Athens, he saw that it was completely overtaken with idolatry. They were worshiping these gods that were made with their hands. They were worshiping these statues that they had made uh, in, in representation of the gods that they, that they came up with. And what Paul is, is doing here is he's going to show to them and he's going to tell them that these gods that you're worshiping have nothing to do about saving you or to do with your lives at all. Um, Basically, the gods that they were worshiping, these stone gods, the only thing those gods could do is basically hurt them. If they got close to that statue and that statue fell over and, and you know, crushed them, that's the only thing that god could do. Or I guess maybe they could have taken those stones and cut them into plates or something and used them to hold food or something. I don't know, but that's the only thing those gods were going to get done. And so Paul is going to talk to them about the true god that they needed, that all of us need to be saved. So in verse 24, Paul says this, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives uh, to all life, breath, and all things. So Paul is saying, the God that I'm talking to you about right now is not like these, these gods that you have, these statues. He said, I'm talking to you about the real God, the God who is above everything, above everything that you could think of in any dimension, in any realm, however you want to put that. It doesn't matter what you think about, where you could go in your mind, anything you could imagine. The God that I'm talking to you about right now is above all of that. There is nothing higher than him. He is the one who made every single thing. And so it's not like this God that Paul is talking about was just walking along and, and saw this creation as like, oh, this is neat. I think I'll step in and be a part of this creation. That's not the way it happened. God made everything. He made everything. And he says he's not worshipped with your hands. He says as though he needed anything. He's saying God doesn't need you, me, or anybody else for him to continue to exist. God doesn't need you, me, or anybody else to help him sustain life. God doesn't need you, me, or anybody else to help him provide salvation. God doesn't need anything from you. But the fact is, is that God does love you. And that's what you need to know, is he loves you. And what you need to know is, he doesn't need these statues that you've created for him to continue to exist. Because 
the gods that they did, they did need, they did need some kind of physical representation for anybody to even know what it was because it wasn't anything real. And so he's saying God doesn't need these statues for him to continue to exist because he, exist, he existed already. He made you. You did not make him. He formed you, and you need to find him. So he continues in verse 26 as, and he was, uh, I'm sorry, and he was, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So Paul was telling them, every single one of us are made from the same blood. Every single person here comes from Adam and Noah for that, for that matter as well. We all come from the same blood. And he's saying, because all of you were created by this one God. And he's saying the thing is, is that all of you in, in created beings, you need to look and seek for the Lord in the hope that you might find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. You know, there's a lot of religions in the world today, some old religions that teach that basically you have to spend your entire, entire life trying to figure out how the world works. And eventually you may get to the point where you figure out how it all works and you can become Zen with the world. And then at that point, then you can know who God is and all that. And that's foolishness. That's not the way this works. God is not far from us. It does not take an entire lifetime to find God. If you think about it really, and as you, as you come to know God, of course you're going to learn more and more about him. But for you to be saved, what you need to know about God, really, you can learn in a few hours. To be saved, you can know what you need to know about God in a few hours. That's what it takes. And again, like I said, you'll learn more and more as you come to know him, but in a few hours you can know who God is, enough to be saved. And that's what he's saying here. God is not far from any single one of you. He's ready. He's there. He's standing and he's ready for every single one of you to accept him. And this God crosses all boundaries. He crosses all boundaries. He crosses uh, the boundaries of where you were born at on the face of the earth. It doesn't matter where you're born at. It doesn't matter if you're born at the top, at the bottom, on this side, that side. It don't matter where you're born at on the face of the earth. You can have access to God. He crosses the boundary of economics. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Anybody can get to God. It doesn't matter if you come from a good family or a terrible family. It doesn't matter if you live a pretty good moral life or if you've lived a not very good moral life. None of that matters. Every single one of you can reach and get to God, but you have to know that you need him. The other thing you need to know is that God is completely righteous and holy. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, here this, uh, this woman named Hannah lived during the Old Testament time, and she loved God and she served God, but her problem was is she could not have children. She was barren. And Hannah prayed to God, and she basically said to God, if you will give me a child, I promise to you, I will make sure this child is dedicated to your service. And that's exactly what happens. God allows her to have a child. She has Samuel, and Samuel was very important within the history of, of God's people with, with the Jewish people. And Hannah, in, in a prayer singing to God, says this. She said, no one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. She said, there's no one holy. There's none like our God, like, like you. She knew, she, she knew if I went to any person on the face of the earth, there's nobody who could have 
taken my body that was not able to have babies and to give me that, that ability. There's nobody who could do that. And she said, there's no one like you. There's no one holy like you. There's nobody like God. He's completely righteous and holy. So the next thing we have to understand is that we can't earn our way to be with God. He's perfectly righteous and holy. And to be with him, we have to be, we need perfection. That's what we need. And none of us, none of us are there. We all understand that. So we need help to approach and to be close to a being who is so holy and perfect. So in Romans uh, 6 and verse 23, you must accept the free gift from God. And this is what Jeremy's going to be preaching on. Not, and this is the only verse I'm taking from that. But Romans 6 and 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how you get perfection is by you getting Jesus Christ. That's the way you get perfection is by getting him. And by getting that perfection, that's how you get to be with God. That's how you're saved. So to get Christ, you need faith. And that's been a big topic of our our Roman study. You have to have faith. Obeying God in faith will secure your salvation. Hebrews 11 talks about faith. Hebrews 11 and 6 says this, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So the writer of Hebrews says here that for us to please God, we have to obey him in faith. We have to approach him in faith. That's the only way we're going to be saved. That's the only way we're going to know God, is by approaching him in faith. And so I guess as you think about faith, there's, there's several aspects of faith. Faith is, number one, I mean, this is um, a given, is that you believe in God. Number two, it's that you take the evidence of what you see and it convinces you of things that you can't see of God. Another thing that faith does is it, it tells you that, okay, there's commandments in God's word that I may not understand. As a human, my knowledge is not where, where God's knowledge is. So whenever I read commandments in God's word sometimes, my human brain may not understand it. But because I know you are the God, as I described a second ago, who's above everything, you're the one who create us, created us. Since you know everything and your ways are above my ways, even though I may not understand what you're telling me to do, because you are perfect and holy, I'm going to do it. And that's what faith is. And we have an example, many examples of that. One is Abraham. In verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out, on the, uh, out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. God came to Abraham and, Abra- and said, Abraham, you have to get up and leave where you live so that you can receive the promise that I'm going to give to you. And it's not like Abraham moved, picked up from Plainview and moved to Hale Center. He picked up and he moved hundreds of miles away from where he lived, totally leaving the culture that he knew. And Abraham believed God. And not only did Abraham say in his mind, okay, I know God has always been faithful to me. I know I love God and I trust what he said is right. He didn't just say that, but he actually did what God said to do. And that's what faith is. And that's what we have to do to find salvation is approach God in faith. Here's just a few things uh, that I'm going to go through quickly that we have to do in faith to please God. Number one, we have to trust in God. Sawyer preached on on this verse Wednesday night. Proverbs 3 and verse 5. We have to trust in God and not lean on our own understanding. And again, that goes back to things sometimes whenever I read in the scripture and I'll say, I I don't know, that's, 
I, I don't know. You know, um, that's not the way that I had seen it in the past. But since, since God said it and God is perfect and he knows the right way, I'm going to trust that he knows that's the right way to do it and I'm going to do it. That's, what, that's us trusting God in faith. Another thing we have to do in faith is understand that we're sinful. I guess this one's not too difficult for us to understand. We're, we all sin. We all come short of the glory of God. We have to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. We don't, we don't just believe that Jesus is a good prophet, just a, a person who just had some good sayings. We have to believe exactly who Jesus said he was. Jesus said, he said, I am the I am. Jesus was the creator of the world. Jesus said, if you're going to come to the Father, you're not going to get there except you go specifically through me. We have to believe uh, Jesus is exactly who he said he was. We have to confess Jesus as Lord. Matthew 10 and verse 32. Jesus said, if you confess me before man, I will confess you before my Father. And I know there's more to that than just that, but that's part of that. We have to live a life that confesses Christ, and I believe we have to, to say those words as well. We have to be ready to repent. Repentance is me looking my, at my old lifestyle and saying, I'm done with that mess. I'm done with that, and I'm ready to turn from that, and I'm ready to follow what God has told me to do. Now, repentance does not mean perfection will never be perfect. But it's me saying, I want to conform myself as closely to the image of Jesus Christ as I possibly can. I'm going to do everything I can to get there. And that's what repentance is, is it's saying, I'm ready to pull apart from the old stuff, and I'm going to, I, want to be, I want to be Christ. I want to be him. I know I'll never be, but that's exactly how I want my life to look. And then we have to put on Christ. Galatians 3 and 27 says, For as, as many of you as put on, have put on, uh, I'm sorry, as many of you as have been baptized have put on Christ. When we are baptized into him, that's where we come into contact with Christ's blood. That's where we come into contact with his death. And that's where we are given salvation. Now, this list that I just gave is a list that we use a lot of times when we talk about salvation. That is definitely not everything. And sometimes we portray it as if you do that list, then you're good. No, that's not it. You, that's just a few things. You need to look into what God's word teaches about you getting the access to him and to faithfully follow what he's laid out for you. I put obedient faith here. I should have, there's no difference between obedient faith and faith. It's the same thing. We have to faithfully implement what God has told us to do. Now, if you think about it, for you gaining salvation, it's not like you gaining a reward that lasts for a weekend or a week. It's not like you calling into a radio station. I don't know if they even do this anymore. But calling into a radio station, you went on a trip to the Rangers game for the weekend. That's not what salvation is about. Salvation is about you securing your eternity. So it takes more than just a generic understanding of, of salvation. You're securing your eternity. You are going to have to dig in and study so that you can know and obey God faithfully. So that's some things that, that we have to do to get into salvation first before we can experience the joy that he promises to us. So for the rest of the lesson, what I want to do is now focus on some of the joys that I believe that we have in salvation. Um, this is just a list that I came up with. And it's definitely, I promise to you, this is not everything, not even close. And so as I go through this list, if there's something that brings you joy in your salvation that you're like, why in the world did he not say this? 
please come tell me after service. I would love to add to this list. These are just some things that I thought of that, that I get as a joy of salvation. Again, going back to what I, where I started off with. Coming into, into the summer season, it's just like this renewed sense, renewed sense of joy and there's a light at the end of the tunnel, that type of, that type of thing. That's what these things do for me. They, they give me that, that, that warmth and that, that comfort from God. So um, we're going to talk about help during trials, true enjoyment here on this earth. Uh, the joy of salvation brings rest. In the joy of salvation, you get to know you're on the winning team. You get the freedom of stability. And the second to the last one is probably the most important one here. Me and Todd has talked about this a few weeks ago, but that you get to know the perfect one. And then as a result of that, you get to be known by the perfect one. Okay, so one joy that we get as, as, as being saved and as being a part of God's family is that we have help during trials. In Psalm 69 here, in, in the Psalms, um, the psalmist, a lot of times is David, not always, but David talks a lot about this, about being in difficult times and facing enemies and just going through trials. And here in, in the 69th Psalm, he talks here about, about going through these. He says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. And he's talking about going through these trials. And I, I know we can all probably understand what he's talking about here. <clears throat> you know, there's some people who are totally terrified of even getting close to having their head go underneath the water. My mom is one. She, she, can, she cannot stand that. I'm good with it. I, I enjoy swimming and all that kind of stuff. But I do remember whenever I was a little kid going to the Hill, the Hill Center Country Club pool. And my cousins, which me and Charles were always the youngest ones, they, our cousins were always bigger. As we were swimming in the pool, my cousins thought it was funny to hold our heads underneath the water. Ha <laughs> ha, real funny. Um, and the joy that you experience from, from having your head underneath the water, not fun. And the, the anxiety that you get from that. But the psalmist here is talking about that, about things happening so much in his life, it was like a flood was coming over him. A flood was overflowing him. And as I've been thinking about this, I just think of it like this. Have you ever maybe been walking somewhere and it's just raining and this would be so glorious right now but raining so hard that you can't hardly see or maybe even more accurately driving so hard where you can't hardly see out of the windshield and I just think of that as as the things we go through sometimes where the water's coming down so much that you can't see but in this what I envision is there's this rope that is stretched out tight and in this you can't see anything but you can grab onto that rope and you can pull along that rope, and everywhere that you pull along that rope, underneath that, there's safety. You're not going to slip and fall. And even though you can't see, if you can just hold onto that rope and slowly pull yourself along that rope, you can get yourself to safety. That's exactly what we have in God. Sometimes it just, things may be so difficult in our lives, we can't see. It's like the saying says, whenever it rains, it pours, and it may be like that for some of us. And if we just hold onto that rope and just pull along it, knowing that God knows perfectly and trust him. Trust what his scripture teaches in that. Trust the people who are giving you godly counsel in that, that they are there to truly help you. Just receive that help. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 21, it says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Following in Christ's steps, that will lead us through the trials of this life. And 
what, what a joy and what a comfort knowing that, that God absolutely wants that for us. He wants us to be helped. He wants, us, he wants to be there and to help us through those trials. And maybe you're in it now, maybe you're coming out of it, maybe you're at a good place right now, but we know regardless of where we're at in the spectrum of that stuff, when we do get there, we know he's going to be there. And it's a cliche, I know, but being a Christian doesn't mean God takes the storms away. He's just going to be there with us in the middle of that storm. And the, the joy and the hope that that gives to us knowing that is, is so helpful. Okay, another joy that we get as in salvation and in salvation being a part of, of God's family is we get true enjoyment here on this earth. You know, if you think about like some clubs that you could become a member of here on, on this earth. Um, I, I don't know, I was thinking like the Star Wars Club, I don't know. Come be a member of the Star Wars Club. Yeah, that sounds like fun. You know, there's going to be a few people who that's going to be fun for. They're going to know all the references and, and all that kind of stuff. But most people are going to be like, okay, yeah, I think uh, I'll pass on that because I have no idea what y'all are going to be talking about. And only a few people can relate and enjoy to that type of thing. The fun that we get by being a part of this family, God's family, is something that every single human can enjoy. It's something that every single human can relate to. It's not like it's something that, that's only for this group of people or for this group of people. The enjoyment that you get by being a part of God's family goes across every culture. It goes across all time. It goes across every economic situation. Again, it, it crosses all of that. It's every single person can enjoy what God provides to us. But the, the enjoyment and the fun that we get from serving God is defined by him. <clears throat> you know, in the world today, if you were to say to somebody in the world today, let's go have fun, basically, I mean, there could be other things, but this is a lot of times what somebody says, let's go have fun. They mean, let's go drink and let's get drunk. Okay? So, just think of all the heartache, all the misery that comes from being drunk. Sounds like fun to me. Sounds like fun to me, doesn't it to you? Okay, in sarcasm. Truly, if you think about it, if you, it, it's, just like, it's just like thinking about what it talked about uh, Moses. He decided he was going to push off the pleasures of sin that lasted for a season and go and to choose a better place. That's exactly what's happening here. If you think about going and getting drunk, this is just an example, and I'm not, I'm not saying I'm looking down or anything. This is just an example that came to my mind, and I'm not perfect. I do stupid stuff also, but just thinking of this as an example, the, you know, a lot of people do that to, to forget their misery or whatever, but it, it, it just brings misery. It brings misery. It brings heartache. There's no fun in that. There truly is no fun in that. And that's what we have to understand is that whenever, whenever we enjoy what God, the enjoyment God brings to us, I want to engage in fun and enjoyment that does not need repentance, that does not need, that does not bring shame. Jackson, Charles, and I the other night cooked supper for Friday Night Fellowship. The food I cooked may have been terrible. I cooked a lot of the bacon, but it was a blast for me. I was at a church function. It was like I was riding a roller coaster. It really was. I had so much fun in doing that. And that's what God offers to us is being able to, 
to be with our church family and to truly, to truly have fun and, that, and have enjoyment. That's what he promised to, promises to us. There's no shame, there's no guilt, there's just fun and enjoyment as a part of his family. In John 2, verses 1 and 2, here it talks about Jesus being at this wedding in Galilee. Jesus was at this wedding. I believe he was probably enjoying himself at this wedding. And of course, I mean that in a perfectly pure and holy way. He was the sinless one, absolutely. But I don't think he was just sitting over in the corner and just frowning about that. I believe he was there having, I believe he was there having fun, enjoying himself in this, uh, in this uh, wedding that he was at. Why would God put feelings of joy and desire to have fun and enjoyment if they were only used for evil intentions? I believe he gave that to us for a reason. Now, if you think about it, if you go back to what I talked about already in uh, the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus was, was giving this. It was Jesus himself speaking. And he said that as this son came back, the father said, let's go kill this fatted calf so that we can eat and be married, to have fun, to have enjoyment. Christ definitely was not looking down on that. In fact, he was... He was reprimanding the older son because the older son was, was being the grumpy one about not enjoying what was going on. Jesus was saying that, I mean, he didn't say anything bad about that, but that was, was the good side of things is where the people were having fun. And again, I'm talking about that, of course, totally from, from, a, from God's perspective. We can have enjoyment. We can have fun as we serve God. <clears throat> Another thing salvation does is that it brings us rest. In Hebrews chapter 4, in this, in this chapter of Hebrews, uh, the writer here is, is talking about several things related to rest. And I think the rest he's talking about is for different types of rest for different time periods. Some rest that we get here on this earth and some rest that we'll experience as we, as we go to the other side. But in Hebrews 4, beginning verse 8, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So the writer of Hebrews here says that there is rest promised to every single one of you. Now there is an ultimate rest that is going to be given to us um, after we go to judgment. But there is also a rest that's offered to us here on this earth. Now, the rest that we're offered here to us on this earth is not the type of rest some people talk about today. Some people say, Jesus did everything for you. And there's nothing for you to do. And if you try to do anything, then you are negating the grace that God has offered to you. And I don't believe that's true. In verse 11, he says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. In the King James, it says, labor labor to enter that rest. So there's absolutely work for us to still do here on this earth. So I think the rest that we are offered on this earth is the rest we get from serving sin. Satan, Satan loves to hurt people. That's what he does. Now, if you think about Satan, this is, this is what Satan does. He wants to get people in his fold. But it's not, it's not like Satan gets people in his fold and then Satan says, okay, he's one of mine now. We're going to look out for this guy. That's not what Satan does at all. Satan gets somebody in his fold, puts his arm around them, and says, you're in my fold. Now, let's think about how I can hurt you even worse. 
It's not like he's like, no, you're in my fold. I'm watching out for you. No, he's, you're in my fold now. I'm going to make your life even more miserable. That's the way Satan works. And that's what he does in all of the lies that he tells us. Satan tells us so many lies. He's so good at it, so deceptive. And what the rest I think that we get is basically the Matthew 11 hope that Christ promises to us. He's, Jesus said, if, you, if your burden is heavy, just paraphrasing, if your burden is heavy, he says, come to me, for my yoke is light and easy. And Jesus gives us that type of rest because we come to God's word and we read God's word and we see that, that all of these things where Satan has lied to us and, and Satan says, Getting drunk, oh, that, that'll, be, that'll be a ride. That'll be fun. You'll fit in with all these people. That'll be good. And all of the lies that Satan tells to us that we should lie to get out of situations, um, all of the different things, when we come to God and when we come to Jesus and we see what his word says, and it's like what, what the scripture says, it's like the light of the glorious gospel of Christ shines on that. And our eyes are opened and we realize I have been lied to in some serious kind of a bad way here. And it's me realizing I have been lied to in some terrible ways. And I'm going to stop doing these sins. And in me stop doing those sins, it will allow these consequences to be lessened. Now, there's consequences for everything. So it's not like they're going to be totally removed, but it's like, Okay, now I know the source of these problems, and if I will stop doing this, these consequences can totally be lessened. And in doing that, there's rest. There's rest that can come from that. And it, again, it's the rest and it's the joy that God promises to us in shining light on those lies that Satan tells us. Another thing, another good thing about the joy of salvation is that you know you are going to be on the winning team. In Revelation 20 and verse 10, it says, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what's eventually going to happen to Satan is he's going to be cast down. What if somebody came up to you and said, would you like to be on the Super Bowl winning team? Would you like to be on the Super Bowl winning team? Sure. I mean, even with your skill level, you can be on the Super Bowl winning team. Okay, that, yeah, I, th I think I'll sign up for that. That's what God is telling us. Even with our skill level, with, with who we are, if we'll accept him, we get to be on the winning team. You know, again, this goes back to the, to the lie that Satan tells us. He tells us if you partake in these sins, you are going to get to be where things are happening at. And that is, that is so strongly bound up in humans' hearts. They like see like this party going on over here. It's like, oh, what's going on over there? I, I think I would like to be a part of that. Uh, may, maybe, maybe that's not for you, but it's in, in things like that. It's like, oh, this group of people enjoy it. It's like, oh, how, what can I do to be a part of that group? And Satan tells us all these lies. You do this sin, you'll get to be a part of this group. And he's totally lying to you. He's totally lying to you because you think you're going where the action is happening at, but this is where he's leading to you. He's, he's leading to you where there's going to be eternal separation. He's leading you to where there's going to be eternal misery. 
And that's, that's what people buy into. They see this stuff and it's like, oh, I want to go where all this good stuff is happening, but he's leading you to the wrong place. And when you, when you accept God and his salvation and follow him in faith, you are, you are setting yourself up to be where, where it's really going to be happening at. And sometimes that's hard for us to see when we get stuck in, in everyday life. But you need to know that is the truth. You are setting yourself up to be where things are going to be happening for real. In 1 John 4 and verse 4, it says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The one who is in us, you can see the capitalized he there, speaking of God through Christ, is in us, greater than he, lowercase he there, speaking of Satan, who is in the world. The, there's, not, there's no competition. There's no competition between Satan and God. God is going to win. That's known. That is known. What is not known is how many people Satan is going to deceive to go with him. That's, that's the only thing that's going to change here. God's going to win. Satan will lose. Who is going to go with God? That's the only difference. Another uh, joy of salvation is that we get the freedom of stability. We get the freedom of stability. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, it says this, whose mind the God of this age, talking about Satan, has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. That's what Satan wants. He wants us to, our, us to be in a fog all the time. He wants our lives to be chaos. And in chaos, Satan's influence works better, really. And that's what he wants. He wants everything to be turned upside down and going this way and that way. You know, in, in, uh, in the kids that I deal with at school, a lot of kids who are struggling, that's exactly what's happening in their lives. Everything constantly is being turned upside down all of the time. And again, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not doing this to like point my finger at anybody. I promise you I'm not. And I'm not saying that I have, nobody has everything figured out. But some people basically, they're like, well, I grew up in chaos. That's, chaos is what I know. And they think that's where they need to be. And the fact of the matter is, no, God wants you to be in a place where there's stability. That's where things really thrive, and that's where things grow, is whenever you can get to a place of stability. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, I know this is speaking about the assembly, but it says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. God does not want there to be confusion. He wants you to know what is happening. He wants you to be to, to, there to be stability. In Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27, Jesus here says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. That, that is what God wants for you. He wants you to know what his word is, to follow it. And he says, whenever you hear my word, and not only hear it, but actually, actually do it. He said, you're, it's like you're building your house on a rock. You're putting yourself in a place of stability. And that just stability is, is the best thing for our family. It's the best thing for our kids whenever they have, have, have things where it's not just constant change in their life. That's, that's where we can grow best. 
And that's what we get as being a part of God's family and, and in salvation as we get stability. As I said, probably the most important thing as a joy of salvation is knowing the perfect one. John 5, 39, Jesus said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. He said, y'all, you people think you know what the scriptures teach, but he said, if you really search them, you'll find that these things, these scriptures teach about me. And that's what we have in the scriptures is we get to learn of Jesus, we get to learn about God, the perfect one. In Psalm 18, verses one through six, he says this, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. The pangs of death surrounded me and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death comforted, uh, confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry came before him even to his ears. The psalmist here says, I love you. I love you, God, O Lord, because he said, you are my strength. He said, you're my rock, you're my fortress, and you're my deliverer. This is God. This is, this is the one above everything. And in us being saved, we get to know him and we get to know him in this way. We get to know him as our rock, as our fortress, and as our deliverer. One, one thing that I struggle with from time to time is this, is as a man and as the man of a family, I'm expected to be the leader of my family. And I'm expected to be, I'm expected to be the one who takes care of things, you know? And just being honest, a lot of times it's hard for me to think about because I'm supposed to be the one who's in charge and, and taking care of things. Sometimes it's hard for me to think about trusting in, in God and like somebody else who can look over me. And a lot of times in that, I'm thinking about God like he's a man. He's not a man at all. He is, he is God. He is God. And I don't have anything figured out. I don't have anything that I'm in control of, but that he gives me the strength to do that. And that's the way we need to look at it and to realize that he is there to guide us. He's, he's perfect. He has perfect strength. He has perfect knowledge. He, he has everything that I wish I could have. He is, he is the pinnacle, and he is the perfect one. And in us being saved, we get to know him, and we get to know all of these things that he provides to us. And the last one I want to look at is not only do I get to know the perfect one, but I get to be known by the perfect one. In 2 Corinthians 6, 17, 18, he says, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That's who God is, and he says that I will call you my sons and my daughters. And we get to say that about the one who created everything. What a, what a blessed thing we have as getting to be a, a part of his family and to, uh, to being saved. So as I said, that's just a, a list of some things that I thought of that we get as a joy of salvation. And again, if there's things in there that I'm sure that I forgot, some very important things, please let me know after service. I'm going to quickly go through the last part of this. Um, 
how to regain joy. First of all, again, remember, we all go through ups and downs in our lives. When we don't feel the joy anymore in our lives, it's not because the joy is gone, it's because we have lost our focus on it. We need to reorient our thinking. That's what has slipped, not the source of the joy. It's us who has slipped. First, we need to realize that all of the things that I talked about and more, many more, first of all, we have to realize that those things are true. The second thing is we need to pray that God would help us in regaining that joy through the things we've talked about. Study the scriptures and find other things about the joy of salvation, another thing we can do to regain joy. So how to maintain the joy? Things we talk about all the time. This is like a list we use for everything, but it's, it's the list you need. This is the list you need for your life. Study the word of God, pray to God regularly, maintain real fellowship with fellow believers, and confess your sins to God. So I want to end where I started, Psalms 51 and verse 7, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. God promises us so much in our salvation in it, and in us being a part of his family. It's such a, a, a blessing to be there. May God bless all of us in his service. If you're here this morning and you have not taken the step to be saved, you haven't done what I talked about earlier, and you have studied, though, enough to know who God is, and you're ready to come to him and to be saved, we want you to do that now. We want you to be saved now. We want you to take care of that right now. If you're ready to come up here to confess Jesus as your Savior and as your God, and be ready to turn from your old lifestyle and then to be buried in baptism so that you can put him on. If you're ready to do that this morning, we are absolutely ready to help you in that. If you're here this morning and you have lost the joy of your salvation, and if the prayers, the collective prayers of these saints here could help encourage you to regain that joy and to help you to, to get that back and to be more of service in God's kingdom, we would love to do that for you now. If there's any need that you have, we'd ask you to come and sit on the front pew as we stand and sing the song of invitation.